This is the Law and the Future of War podcast, brought to you from the University of Queensland Law School. Through conversation with experts in technology, law and military affairs, this series explores how international law regulates new military technologies. Today we are going to be talking about the strategic effect of OSINT. So this is part of our Ukraine and accountability series, and we're following up from our last episode on open source intelligence, where we spoke with Ben Strick about what OSINT is. But today we're talking with Tom Bullock, who has published with Jane's Defence Weekly, Jane's Intelligence Review, and is currently a senior technical intelligence analyst with Atreides, a software development company that deals with big data. But we're talking to you today more about your skills in open source intelligence and your involvement in particular in tracking what's going on in Ukraine. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi. We heard about what OSINT was in our previous episode, but can you talk to us about what your specific role with open source intelligence in the Ukraine has been? Yeah, sure. So mainly my role in the war and actually for around two years before the war started was around tracking and monitoring activity of Russian military units through open source. So we had a particular focus on monitoring where specific Russian military units were, what they were doing, whether they were training or conducting combat operations and with what specific pieces of equipment. So monitoring what the Russians were doing effectively, how do you get cued onto that with open source intelligence? In terms of sourcing, there's a lot of things we use. So I guess, like, as you've probably already learned with Ben, that open source intelligence is a very broad spectrum of information all being gathered together. So track the Russian military, we would use everything from sort of satellite imagery and social media, either of social media from troops or social media from civilians who happen to just be sort of filming military equipment being moved around. And then we would also try and corroborate that with more conventional official reporting. So things from Russian mainstream media organizations, Russian Ministry of Defense. And essentially the aim was to pull together as many different sort of streams of information from these sources and pull them together to try and establish a coherent picture of what's going on on the ground. So how was that picture used once you put it together? Where did it go? So for the most part, it goes to support our customers. and They are governments and militaries. Basically, we're attempting to support their workflow. So whether that's providing data so that they don't have to go looking for it themselves or covering a capability gap for a smaller organization. But then after the war started, we also started branching out a little bit more. So we were supporting journalists and news organizations, either Mm -hmm. providing general context and analysis to events that were taking place or supporting direct requests, particularly around Russian war crimes or alleged Russian war crimes. I'd like to come back to that war crimes piece in in a second, but just in terms, I guess, of how you determine where the information goes? Is there a process as to how you verify what you put together? Or is that something that you pass on for the recipient of the information to then verify themselves? So are you effectively providing information for someone then to sift? Or is it an an analysed report that includes your assessment of what's true and what's not? Well, I think for it to qualify as open source intelligence, as opposed to open source information, it has to have that degree of analysis and verification alongside it, because otherwise you are just a conduit of sources for a customer, which can be useful, but generally like customers want you to do a bit of the work because they can't do it or they don't have the time to do it. But yeah, so we were providing analysis to our customers. So we would provide it in two ways. It's sort of a geospatial events database 
Mm -hmm. and then written reporting as well on specific activity. So you touched about the fact that some of this information was going to be used to report atrocities. So how do you know that the data you've collected has been used so far? So the main capacity we supported with was with organisations, particularly news organisations, investigating war crimes. We attempted to use our research and data to provide a bit of context as to which Russian units were operating in those areas at the times that these atrocities were committed. So we mainly focused on helping journalists say definitively or not whether a particular Russian unit was in a particular area to help feed their investigations. And we've seen a couple of them published so far, but there's a few more with specific organisations that are still in the works at the moment. I think what we've seen in Ukraine is probably the next step change in terms of modern conflict being played out in real time as far as the reporting and publication and the information operations are concerned, probably more so than we've seen in conflicts in Afghanistan and Iraq even. Do you think this is largely because of the focus of open source intelligence in this conflict compared to the others? Or what do you think the cause of that is? Or do you not agree with that assessment? So I don't think that Ukraine really is the first war where open source intelligence has taken the forefront. It's definitely the biggest war where this has happened, but all of these things didn't just sort of erupt out of nowhere. They've been brewing along in the background, covering wars in Syria and Libya, the Nagorno-Karabakh war in 2020. There's been several years of people covering conflicts in this way. I think it's more that the invasion of Ukraine was like a headline grabber, more than, say, the wars in Syria or Libya were. Do you think, though, that in this case, the use of this kind of reporting has actually influenced the way that the war has been waged compared to those other conflicts? Or do you think that they all, to a degree, have had that kind of influence? I don't think that open source reporting on the war has particularly changed how the war is fought on the ground. I think it's changed a lot of aspects around the war, but I don't necessarily see militaries fighting the war in a particularly different way. As you've seen, like open source intelligence and reporting doesn't stop Russian soldiers from committing atrocities, for example. It's not, they're not thinking about this before that. But what it does change is how we report on wars, particularly news organizations, I think. So the understanding of how these conflicts work seems to have stepped up quite a lot, thanks mostly, in my opinion, to open source intelligence. So if you remember back to when the war was before the war started, when the Russians were massing troops on the border, mm-hmm. you could watch the news and you would see journalists talking about these things called indicators and warnings, which is an intelligence term for you know, what are the indicators and warnings you look for for an event happening. They're talking about indicators and warnings of the Russians invading Ukraine, and it's things like deploying field hospitals, readying blood supplies, things like that, which I don't think you would have ever heard a news organization talking about in the past. And I think in a way that was helped a lot by open source intelligence and the other side of that is that the governments who were attempting to draw attention to this such as the US government were able to also draw on open source intelligence to kind of point people in the right direction and help provide more detail in the reporting that they were putting out so one of the things we saw which I always thought was quite interesting was the US government would issue these press releases or statements before the war began saying the Russian military is doing X at the moment and they would never offer up any evidence for this because it's all you know intelligence sources but mm. a lot of the time the things that the Americans were drawing the press's attention to were also available through open source so the press could say 
the American government have said this. And by the way, here are some videos that an investigator has found that corroborate that. So it definitely changed how wars have been reported on the baseline understanding of how conflicts work. And I think it also helps governments evidence things without giving away their own sources. You've mentioned that the use of open source intelligence is a method for governments to refer to information that would previously have been classified or kept in-house by military organisations or intelligence organisations of a state. Do you think that that is changing the capabilities of states insofar as they don't need to invest as much in terms of their intelligence capabilities, they're relying on the OSINT more, or are they creating OSINT capabilities themselves? What What's your general observations? So I think... Most militaries, particularly in the West, are coming around to a larger dependence on open source information. Mm-hmm. I've never been in the military, so it's more of an observation than a, a detailed understanding. But I, I remember talking to a colonel within NATO who said that they would currently get around 80% of their information from open source. And 30 years ago, 80% of it came from top secret sources. But I don't think open source intelligence necessarily stops militaries from investing heavily in top secret or classified intelligence gathering techniques. I think if anything, they do that more now than ever before, but the volume of information is so much greater and you can take more from open source than you necessarily could before. So as far as that big data concept is concerned, how do you as an open source intelligence analyst get through just the flood of information that exists in relation to the issues that you're looking at? I think there's a lot of different things you can do. Most of it just comes down to being highly focused on the questions that you're asking of the information that's available. Mm -hmm. So if you go out there and want to understand absolutely everything, I think you're going to struggle. For starters, you should have focused questions. So how does X influence this or what is this particular unit up to, for example? Those are very focused questions. And then the other thing I think is like, the more you work in this space, the more you start to understand what are good sources, what are bad sources, where to find the sort of sources that will give you the answers you need. And it's about focusing as much in terms of your question as in your collection of information as well. So figuring out hopefully the easiest way of answering your question, basically. And so as far as verification of data is concerned, I'm assuming you have technical skills, tools available to you to assess what's real and what's not out there? Yeah, so you absolutely try your best. But I think with all intelligence work, you have to caveat it with your assessment of how verifiable the sources are or how accurate they are. So after you've dug into all of this stuff, you can essentially assign a confidence score to every piece of analysis you publish. In the UK, we use the UK probability index, which is basically a list of words that are assigned to percentages of confidence. So they go from highly unlikely, unlikely, probable, highly likely, likely, etc. That's like the top level for sort of covering off your analysis. But in terms of verification, yeah, we have a fairly broad spectrum of tools. Most of them are freely available. And it really depends what sort of question you're answering. So if you're attempting to verify a piece of media or imagery, your best starting point is to do reverse image searching to attempt to discern whether the image has been circulated before. Mm. And then if you're starting to dig into things like deepfakes, I think you need a little bit more expertise in what to look for and to be able be comfortable going out there and asking someone for the help with that sort of question. Right. We've heard of technologies that you can identify how many pixels in an image have been adjusted or adopted, for example. So is that now something 
that needs to be done routinely because of, I guess, the concept of deep fakes. We hear a lot about it, but is it out there? Is there a lot of content that is fake in this particular area? I haven't seen vast quantities that I know of of misinformation. I think it depends where you get your information from as well. So Mm. in terms of video and imagery, you're more at risk of being exposed to a deep fake if you say only pull media from places like Twitter. In the open source world, Twitter is a really interesting place because there's a lot of people working at similar sort of areas and posting a lot of material on Twitter. But generally, Twitter is more of an aggregation service than a source. So people on Twitter find things from people posting on places like Telegram, and they aggregate all of that information onto Twitter. And then people from Twitter pick it up and aggregate it further through their accounts. I think you're at risk of being exposed to deepfakes there, especially because you're essentially relying on other people to do your verification as they're aggregating information. But if you go to traditional social media and start looking for your own sources, so one of the areas that I focus on quite heavily as part of covering the war in Ukraine is identifying Ukrainian soldiers on social media. So either through Instagram or TikTok, Mm -hmm. we identify soldiers and we monitor their activity because they're quite prolific posters, really. Posting videos of, you know, where they are and pieces Mm -hmm. of equipment or units that they've captured, things like Mm -hmm. that. I feel like you're at a significantly lower risk of being exposed to deepfakes if you're in that space rather than on Twitter. So you mentioned an aggregate, I guess, platform versus a source platform. So could you explain for our listeners what the difference is between those two kinds of pieces of software? They're just um, different ways of using social media, right? So Twitter generally is professionals and amateurs all putting things online that they've found and are interested in. Twitter isn't really a primary source for places like Russia and Ukraine, especially. You don't get many Russians and Ukrainians on Twitter, for example. But I guess the difference really is Twitter is a lot of people talking about things that are happening online. And then if you go to VK, Instagram or TikTok, you'll find the accounts of the people on the ground who are actually doing these things. And so how do you work out that that is a person on the ground? I mean, other than just looking at the photos of them and seeing them in a particular kind of uniform? Well, it's a little bit of everything, really. So you can have cross-corroboration between different accounts. So one of the really handy things you get with the Ukrainians is they all post pictures of each other and they like to tag each other in them. (laughs) But it's cross-corroboration, corroboration with events, and then also just looking at the profiles and examining whether they appear genuine or not. So have they just appeared out of nowhere? Do they have a history? Do they have comments, likes? Do they have pictures of them before they were a Ukrainian soldier, for example? What sort of behavior do they demonstrate? I mean, it's very, I think you can be fooled by them sometimes. Like there are people out there masquerading as soldiers and accounts that appear to be accounts of soldiers that are, again, just aggregators. But there's much fewer of them on the actual primary source platforms than there are on a place like Twitter. And I'm assuming there's tells with those kinds of accounts? Yeah. So you either get very few pictures of people's faces or you start to see pretty quickly that the videos that they're posting or the images that they're posting have also appeared somewhere else very shortly afterwards. Like a lot of the accounts for the Ukrainian soldiers that I know of aren't particularly well known, I don't think, outside of Ukraine. Like it's very rare that I see something on one of these accounts just pop up miraculously on a place like Twitter. 
So you've mentioned that a lot of the source data comes from soldiers themselves. Uh, Traditionally, Western militaries have had pretty strict social media policies in terms of what their soldiers can and can't post because of that sort of intelligence concern. What, What kind of information can you discern from this information that is being posted by soldiers? Where they are, what they're up to, what particular operations they're undertaking. That's when they're on the front line. So you can start to get a gauge of what villages they're in, whether they're advancing or staying still. One of the interesting things I think that's come out recently, so following uh, Ukraine's offensive in the Kharkiv region in eastern Ukraine, Mm -hmm. what I saw is a lot of soldiers were active on the front lines and then they almost immediately sort of dropped off and all went home and started posting pictures with their family or going out to bars and things. And it's an indicator at least that the Ukrainian military is resting its troops and the reality on the ground bore that out eventually. It showed that after the Ukrainians seized all of this territory, for the most part, they stopped conducting large-scale offensive operations and they were attempting to rest their troops rather than just push them on again. So I think there's certainly a lot more than you think at first from it, but every time you see something new, there's a new potential for figuring something out. That's a pretty huge advantage for the Russians then, isn't it, to understand how the Ukrainian military operates in terms of rest and recuperation cycles even? I guess so, yeah. I mean, I'm pretty sure the Russians probably realised around the same time that the Ukrainians weren't pushing. But I do think you're right. If Russians could gain indicators that all of these Ukrainian soldiers are returning back from their leave and heading back to the front line, then it's a pretty big indicator that something may be about to happen. Have you seen anything like that as far as a response in the opposition social media to what's being reported publicly on the other side? So Russian social media is, I think, pretty clued up in general about what the sort of Western, like, OSINT space in quotation marks is doing. And Mm -hmm. they seem to interact a little bit. They definitely pick up on narratives from each other and argue over them. But I think in terms of tracking, say, individual Ukrainian soldiers or individual Russian soldiers, that's not a very common thing in either side's OSINT space, I guess. So you talked about the Russian use of social media being pretty cluey. So what impact is there on state influence in terms of what you see on OSINT? I mean, we hear a lot about the Russians having units of people, civilians or military, who are putting information out there on the internet to influence public opinion generally and the conduct of operations. Do you see a lot of that or evidence of those kinds of posts? It's a really interesting question because I personally don't feel like Russian misinformation is necessarily targeted at O-centers. Well, I guess it is in a lot of ways. So as videos that will be published or images will be published that try and skew the narrative towards Ukraine being at fault. That does happen, but it's very especially at the moment, it's very blatant. Mm-hmm. So I personally find it quite hard to get sucked into that narrative because Russian disinformation at the moment or information operations are basically focused on making Ukraine look bad. And it's pretty obvious what they're doing in the same way that it's pretty obvious what the Ukrainians are doing. Both sides post information fairly regularly, but I don't think it's a coordinated thing on either side. So a lot of the main Russian sources are telegram journalists, for example, who work for Russian media organizations, but I don't think they're necessarily coordinated. They're just acting in their own interests in the space. So something else we see a lot of in the media is references to the fact that access to information from the Russian civilian population is quite 
limited in terms of it being controlled by the Russian government. Do you have any information about how that's influencing open source information on the Russian side? Yeah, so there's definitely been a like a sea change since the war began in terms of what information you could get out of Russia. Before the war began, I'm sure you must have seen this, we were following hundreds of trains carrying military equipment towards the border. But now reporting available from social media has dropped significantly. So I think people are less, well, it's an interesting question, actually, whether you say that they're less inclined because of the threats posed by the Russian military to them if they do start posting pictures of tanks being moved around or camps, Mm. or whether they are just so used to it now that it's not novel enough to post on social media. I mean, I'm fairly certain it's the former, but I guess a bit of the latter plays into it as well, because one of the main things that we got when we were tracking all the equipment moving towards the border was like people were a little bit alarmed and a little bit surprised to see train after train of military equipment going past their house Mm. but i guess the novelty of it has kind of faded as the war's gone on that sort of points to another issue with open source intelligence you sort of allude to the idea that you are reliant on what is fascinating or novel to people to put on social media as compared to just something that people are posting because it's their job to observe things. So is that a fairly significant difference between, I guess, military intelligence and open source intelligence? I guess it is. But generally, the things we're interested in are pretty novel and usually warrant some kind of posting on social media if you're that sort of type of person. Yeah. Like a bombing or something like that. Mm. Like, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like We're relying on a limited sort of pool of data to get our questions answered from and sometimes you can't do it right like I think OSINT isn't like a silver bullet that you can just solve every question with like sometimes you can't answer the question you're trying to answer with it but we are reliant on information published to social media a lot of the time but there's also other things we can do like look at satellite imagery look at news reports you've just got to keep your sources open and try and aggregate as much as you can together. Something that I did find interesting in Ukraine that I think is probably different from, well, probably not different from what we saw in places like Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria was the continued internet access during the conduct of high-end conflict. Whereas I think it's probably fair to say it was a surprise to a lot of people that there wasn't some sort of large amount of communications denial going on in and around where there was this high intensity fighting. Some of that could be attributed to things like Starlink being provided on the ground. Talk about that being switched off if it's not being funded by the US government in the news this week, which I think is a whole other conversation to be had about (laughs) multinational corporations and their influence on contemporary operations. Is that different, the idea that we're seeing internet just not being switched off? Communication is everywhere and it seems to be hard to kill it. Yeah, I think it's very difficult to stop something like that. And this is, I think this is kind of a problem with all, uh, when people talk about military equipment in general, Mm. people naturally assume that a capability is going to be 100% effective. So another like analogy for this is when you're talking about air defense systems, people love to put an air defense system on a map and draw a big ring around it to say, Everything that comes within this ring will be shot down. Magically fall out of the sky. Yeah, it's a silver bullet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the same with electronic warfare systems, the sort of things that you would use to jam internet connections or phone signals. They're not going to work all the time. They're going to have varying effects based off the environment. But then also both sides need these signals to operate effectively themselves. And 
a military may end up jamming its own equipment if it tries to jam too much signal. So it's definitely more than an inconvenience. It makes things very difficult. And there were areas, particularly during the beginning of the war, say in Chernihiv, where reporting from social media and places like that was pretty thin on the ground. And I imagine a lot of it comes down to stopping these things from operating. Mm -hmm. But it's not a silver bullet. And I think that's more of a misconception around the equipment than it is anything else. Something else that's come out of the open source intelligence is you can see the reliance on mobile phone communications, unsecure communication systems on both sides of the fence of this conflict, which is another, I guess, interesting thing that you can pull out of open source reporting is to see what level of sophistication the military capability is. When I see Jane's, I'm like, that's the encyclopedia of military stuff. If I want to know what a shiny thing is, I Google Jane's list <laughs> and it tells me what the shiny thing is. I mean, is that information that you can get or you did get through a lot of the OSINT posts? Yeah, absolutely. So one of my big things when we were at Jane's was just trying to identify equipment and units so you can get a better understanding of that capability and you can see it everywhere people post pictures of their own equipment pictures of equipment they've captured or destroyed and you can start building up an understanding of the capabilities on offer i think mm -hmm. it's good and bad because with open source you start seeing all this equipment and you go like okay i know what's going on in this area i know what equipment they've got but in reality like you've only seen maybe a very small percentage of what's actually there i try and avoid using open source intelligence to rule things out rather to sort of say that's probably there. Got it. To rule it in rather than discount it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you never know what you've not seen. And especially with some of the Russian reporting around getting stuff from Russian journalists, there's a 90 plus percent chance that they wanted you to see it anyway. So you're not going to start seeing, especially during the war, the Russian journalists don't tend to post pictures of their more high-end electronic warfare kit. Mm -hmm. bimbling around the front lines it's mainly tanks and artillery which is good for identifying units but yeah there's a whole host of capabilities you're not seeing so do you think militaries are still smart enough to influence how OSINT is being used to reveal their capabilities or do you think it's too prolific to be able to do that depends on what source you're using if you're using social media or your source is literally a Russian journalist then yeah they probably do have the power to control that but mm. If you're using high-res satellite imagery, it becomes a lot more difficult to hide. I think it genuinely depends really on what you're using to try and answer the question. Right. And then obviously each piece of the puzzle builds to a bigger picture of what exists. Yeah. We've sort of talked about how OSINT has been used in Ukraine. As far as the actual conduct of the industry is concerned, and there's a lot of people doing open source intelligence work at the moment from an industry perspective is there is there regulation on how this work is conducted or is how as an intelligence is your work controlled so i think there's a lot of space for improvement in this area as far as i understand most of the things that govern modern open source intelligence analysts can do are national or international data protection boards there's no specific laws I know of regarding open source intelligence that extend from those. It's not like journalism, for example, where you have much more in-depth rules and laws and codes of conduct. But I think that's mainly because it's a very, outside of a military, open source intelligence is a very new thing to be happening. And the commercialization of it and people working on it professionally 
outside of the military is a very new thing. And I do think there's a lot of room for growth in that area and it's probably something that should happen eventually. You mentioned a code of conduct and that interests me because, you know, speaking to other OSINT analysts, discussions about withholding information until a certain point in time to then publicise it because it might give one side or the other a, a military or a tactical advantage. An example that we heard last week was not publishing information in relation to where rounds are landing because it might give Russian forces the opportunity to bracket their artillery, for example, but then potentially publishing it immediately if it was going to advantage the Ukrainian forces. So obviously that organization has picked a side do you think that's problematic in terms of how OSINT works I think there's definitely space for problems with that Mm. the one that jumps straight to my mind is the Nagorno-Karabakh war in 2020 where who was in the wrong and who was in the right was a little bit grayer for most people observing it Mm. but I think a lot of the issues that you highlighted there are more prevalent in the I guess independent open source intelligence space so where you have ngos and amateurs working together Mm. i think in the professional space we generally strive to be as impartial as possible and because for example when we do our work we're not publishing it to everyone at once like there's a little bit less risk in us writing about exactly where an airstrike or artillery attack happened because it's less likely to be immediately picked up by the opposition forces, Mm. whether you agree with them or not. So I think it just, if you're publishing your information directly to public, it's definitely a consideration you have to make. And I think you have to ask yourself the questions of what you're doing. Mm. Professionally, we try and strive for impartiality. And I think it affects us less because we don't publish direct to the public. So could you explain the difference then between professional OSINTers and the casual open source intelligence analyst? Sure. So I think the main difference is some of us get paid to do this work and some of us don't. I think there are great analysts on both sides. Like this war has demonstrated that there are some amateurs with some deep expertise in the areas they're studying. But yeah, as a professional, I work to answer the questions and the things that my clients have asked, our customers have asked us to do. Mm -hmm. As an amateur, you're kind of just doing what you're interested in. Mm. And you publish that work freely and publicly to everyone whereas my work for the most part only gets seen by my customers. So those customers though aren't just governments are they? Not necessarily. If they're not governments I mean if they're say industry or private clients who have their own interests in the information I guess it's difficult to draw a line then as to what is contributing to the conflict or is just separate from and dealing with private interests or do you think that that's pretty clear-cut depending on the information request or intelligence request and whether then the information you're providing that person is going to ultimately facilitate one side of the conflict or the other having a, a beneficial effect it's it's really interesting something i haven't really thought about before actually because i guess in essence the potential for impact is the same on both sides. Mm. It's just less visible if you're doing it through a commercial path. But I think the main thing is who you as an organization choose to work with and whether you trust them or not. It's a lot harder to, when you're publishing things to everyone, you can't make that judgment. Mm. I think that's, for me, interesting in terms of who could be considered to be contributing to the armed conflict or not and what status that makes that person subject to. So from an international humanitarian law or laws of armed conflict perspective, 
the concept of direct participation in hostilities has been one that's been pretty fraught when we're talking about people who are conducting physical acts of violence. It's even more difficult when we're talking about people who are facilitating military decision-making through things like open source intelligence reporting. What's your view on that? (laughs) (laughs) That's a very interesting question again. I've got a question to send back to you as sort of a rebuttal to that. Yeah, sure. Say you're an amateur OSINT Mm -hmm. and you go online and you do your bits of reporting and that's your thing to do. Mm -hmm. If you're just reporting on the day-to-day activity of a war and a military takes your reporting and uses it as part of its decision-making process. Does that make you complicit in participating in the conflict in the way that you asked? For me, that seems to be one of the critical issues in terms of how OSINT is being used, proliferating and influencing operations at the moment is, is who is in and who is out because the so what of that is that there is responsibilities in terms of complying with international humanitarian law there's obligations in terms of what you can and can't report on and do you think there's a lot of space to maybe not add regulation but to at least provide a sort of code of conduct similar to how Mm -hmm. journalists operate Mm. just so we have some level of accountability i do feel like these things will happen i've actually spoken to another institution in the past and they've said the same thing like there needs to be some kind of charter for these things Mm. But I think other than that, I'm unsure what else we could do at the moment. You're never going to be able to say outright ban these methodologies. I guess that's sort of its strength and its weakness at the same time, right? Because it is publicly available information that is being either manipulated in the worst case example, or on the other hand, it's being used for an altruistic purpose if it's just being posted generally or it's just as a curiosity that it's being done or it's being done in response for a client. I mean, because it's publicly available information, there's not a lot you can do to control it Yeah. or how people interact with it. No, I don't think there is a lot you can do. I think all you can attempt to do is establish a standard for what is right and what is wrong and hope that people hold each other to those standards. Do you think there's some analogies there then in terms of the concept of fake news and the, the Facebook echo chamber of opinion posting versus legitimate journalism? Yeah, absolutely. I think journalism and especially open source intelligence are very similar in a lot of ways. My partner's actually a journalist and I think we find a lot of similarities in this work that we do. And then we also find a lot of differences, but there's a large part of it is very similar. And I think that's also why news organizations have taken so well to having sort of OSINT departments within their organizations, Mm -hmm. because it's very similar. And I think we could learn a lot as a group of professionals as to how we should attempt to introduce certain standards from journalists. I mean, the similarities seem fairly obvious, but what are the differences that you've identified? The main difference is in terms of what you can say. So in terms of being an analyst, I can say things that I don't have definitive proof are true, providing I caveat them appropriately. Mm -hmm. So if I can say, we believe this to be true based on X, Y, and Z, and we have this level of confidence in that thing being true, Mm -hmm. we can publish that in one of our reports. But a journalist has to have evidence that's solid to publish something and I think that's the main difference is we are analysts not reporters. But then don't journalists rely on your analysis to give them that solid evidence? (laughs) They do but I think when 
a journalist has ever quoted me, for example, it's always we think or we say this. We're not mm-hmm. being used as a definitive source. We're being used as a, this is the best we can get. But I think journalists even then take that into consideration by choosing who they speak to, making sure they're the best person to talk to on a particular topic. And also they can caveat an analyst talking as an analyst has said this, but mm. they don't necessarily talk about tanks being moved from A to Z definitively. I think that's really interesting because I do think that there's probably not as much awareness about that distinction in the general public as there would be, particularly in a household that has a journalist and an open source intelligence analyst <laughs> under the same roof. Yeah. You were a state. Do you think that open source intelligence can be defeated or counted as a state? Yeah, again, it depends on which domain you're looking at within open source intelligence. So social media intelligence. Yeah, absolutely. And I think most states are fairly good at this. And we tend to get most of our exploitation from individuals within those states who fail to practice what they're told to do. Mm -hmm. Imagery, satellite imagery intelligence, probably a little bit harder to do. It's much harder to hide a ship or a field full of tanks. But I do think there are things you can do to mitigate it. And a lot of militaries are attempting to train their troops away from the high risk areas that could be easily exploited. So there are a multitude of examples of Western militaries using soldiers, social media accounts to target them when on training exercises. I was actually talking to a tanker from the British Army who used Snapchat to defeat his simulated enemy's company HQ in an exercise, things like that. But they are training to do these things. But I think as those countermeasures evolve, so will open source intelligence. And as you enter a war like the war in Russia and Ukraine, where you're being forced to pull in masses of people who aren't drilled in this type of work, it again becomes easier. So it's probably a bit of ebb and flow, but... There are a lot of things you can do. And then again, I think there are ways of working around that still. I think there's an artificial or there is a legal distinction as to information that a government can post. And when you're a soldier, you're a representative of the government as compared to what someone could do as a private citizen too, which sort of cycles back to the shield and the sword aspect of OSINT in the first instance. Did you have any recommended resources for people to read who are new to this area or interested in what open source intelligence is or references for how OSINT has influenced or reported on Russia-Ukrainian actions? Yeah, absolutely. So I think Ben Strick, who you had on last week, I believe, Mm -hmm. is just a really good starting point for having someone talk you through the different methodologies that people use to perform this kind of investigation. And then if you want to read about how these are employed. Um, obviously, Bellingcat is just great. All of their research is really interesting, although some of it does tend to lean towards investigative journalism as opposed to OSINT. Finally, a really good blog by this guy called Line of Actual Control. Mm-hmm. There's small stories taking open source intelligence and just throwing them at very specific questions, really interesting ways of attacking questions and approaching them. And I've read a lot of his stuff and I really like it. Fantastic. Thank you for those recommendations. And thank you so much for your time this morning for you, this evening for me. Once we finally worked out the time zones, which is always a problem at my end, (laughs) I really appreciate your time and you sharing your experiences in this interesting new world of open source intelligence with us. No worries. It's um, very nice to talk to you. This podcast was made by the Law and the Future of War Research Group at the University of Queensland Law School. 
A full list of episodes and links to additional material, as well as our contact details, are available on our website. Just search for Law and the Future of War. This podcast was recorded on the unceded lands of the Turrbal and Yagara peoples. We pay our respects to their elders past and present.